0: What's the church supposed to look like and who gets to decide? Does the answer to that question shift substantially on where you live or when you live or around whom you live? 1 Corinthians 16, 1-20 is a whole body of practical divinity. Put that down in our terminology. It's a multifaceted picture of exactly what the church should look like. And more specifically, how the Gospel of Jesus Christ is to shape the practical activity of every local church. So whether you lived in the last century, or whether you would have been among those who are to be born in the next century, whether you lived on this continent or one of the others, the things that 1 Corinthians says to us, should apply to every single local church. This is the Word of the Lord. We have so much wonderful territory to cover. Let's get to work. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. We'll read the first 20 verses. Hear the Word of the living God. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may appoint, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many... Adversaries. Verse 10. Now if Timothy comes, see to it that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I encourage you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, That they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, and they have refreshed My spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The Word of the Lord. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Ask for God's blessing once again. Father, I thank You that You give us passages in the Bible like this one, where You tell us exactly how You want us to live. You don't leave us to guess or wonder. So we ask that you would cause our lives to look precisely like what we find in this passage. So help us God, in Jesus' name, Amen. As I have simmered on these 20 verses over the previous days and weeks, it just falls apart naturally into a number of sections that show us, as I mentioned earlier, practical divinity. Practical Christianity. What is it supposed to look like in our lives? And those sections will serve as our sermon outline. But let me just give you the sermon in one loaded sentence. In a sentence, the sermon would be this The most generous being in existence is also, thankfully, the most wealthy in every abundance. That's God. The most generous being in existence is also the most wealthy in every abundance. He has everything and it pleases Him greatly to give away what He has. And He has given you all that He has and all that He is. It's the Gospel. The Gospel is not giving you something. It's giving you someone. Someone. So the most generous being in existence is also thankfully the most wealthy in every wonderful abundance. And He has given you in Christ all that He has and all that He is. Now here's this passage. And on that basis, God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, on that basis, He commands you. No suggestion. No good ideas. No, think about it if you ever get around to it. He demands you. He commands you. On the basis of His own generous heart and His Gospel love, here's what He commands. It's a big sentence. I know that. It's a run-on, but follow me. This is what He commands you. To experience His joy. Especially in two ways as we see it in this passage. One, to experience His joy In your generosity expressed toward his children. And second, in your obedience to all of his commands, particularly to live in harmony with his people. Be generous and obey God. Well, with that in mind, the first of our several points from this passage, verses one through four, is this Christ's churches are to be marked by a gospel purchased generosity Now I've worded that as best I can to reflect what we find in verses 1 through 4 let me say it again Christ's churches are to be marked known marked by a gospel purchased generosity maybe you hear the play on words already he purchased it therefore you be generous everything God requires us to give is something that he's given to us to begin with and that is a gospel purchased generosity Is that true of our church? Is that true of the church that uh, some of you who are with us today and you're members of, would that describe your churches? The first point is basically saying this, Jesus has already paid for everything He requires for us to give. We're not merely talking about being generous. There's a lot of philanthropists in the world. There's a lot of people who appear to not hold on in a greedy way to the stuff that's under their possession. We're not talking about generosity only, we're talking about a Gospel-purchased generosity. As we look deeply into the heart of God, and the more deeply we look, the more clear what I'm about to say becomes, as we look deeply in the heart of God and we see His unlimited generosity flowing out toward us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that rich love shapes our heart into His likeness. What would that look like? That love would flow out of our hearts in joyful generosity toward others. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, this is the fifth now concerning in the book. Which means that it's one of the six things, there's one more in this chapter, It's one of the six things that the Corinthian church wrote in their letter to Paul concerning questions. Now concerning this, now concerning that, this is the fifth one. Now concerning the collection for the saints. When the apostle thinks about the needs of God's people, not only in one local church, but broadly across the globe, where the Spirit of God is at work, the Gospel is advancing, When the Apostle thinks about the needs of God's people, his appeal for donors does not get pushed out in a fingers crossed kind of way through his LinkedIn account. Rather, he writes expectantly to the churches of Christ, the people that belong to Jesus, and he says these kind of words, as I directed the churches of Galatia, you do this also, the church at Corinth. And the collection in this case is in verse 3 for the saints in Jerusalem. There's two reasons that they needed monetary relief and that Paul expected the churches around the known world to provide for that relief. One reason is spoken about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 and Romans chapter 15. That is, they were in poverty Especially as a result, it seems, of the unusual number of widows that God had saved, Acts chapter 6, and the needs that arose among them. And then, second, it's almost certain that they lost, that is, the saints in Jerusalem, at least an entire year's worth of crops, if not more, due to a famine that's spoken about in Acts chapter 11. So they had a lot of people, widows, particularly elderly ones who couldn't care for themselves, who were born-again Christians, and they needed help. And then the believers whose crops had failed or they were not provided for uh, with the regular distribution of seed from the government and so forth because of the name of Christ. So they needed help. So Paul expects that the churches would be generous. But they would be marked by a gospel purchase generosity. The monetary support of the relief of our suffering brothers and sisters has been a practice among Christ churches from the very beginning. In light of passages like this, that's a reason that Grace Church from the very beginning, very first meeting actually that we ever had in 2006, have been setting aside a portion of every single dollar that we've received from the beginning of our establishment so that we could encourage other sister churches in their need and their establishment. So, gospel generosity should shape our churches. This uh, is more clear as we look at verse 2. Verse 2 assumes that the local churches in the New Testament gathered on the first day of every week. Now, this may just sound like uh, Captain Obvious to everybody, but are there not many in our day who say, oh, the church is not a building, I don't have to go on Sunday. I could actually agree with a lot of that. Except the last part. The church is the people. It's not the place. We know that. We're the temple of the living God. First Corinthians teaches that. Chapter 3 and chapter 6. But does verse 2 not say very plainly, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save? What does he assume in that verse? That they're together. The you is plural. When you all are meeting, like all God's people do on the first day of every week, Be mindful of the suffering saints that are not with you in other parts of the world. Now, there's also a very powerful reason that the first day of every week became the meeting day of God's people in the New Testament, and you all know what that very important reason is, because Jesus got up from the dead. That's why the church started meeting on Sunday, when previously in the Old Testament era, Saturday would have been marked as the Sabbath. What this means is the Gospel of Jesus Christ very practically shapes the whole life of every church. Do you see how those dots connect? Jesus gets up from the dead. That's the Gospel. Therefore, we meet on that day. The Gospel shapes everything about the church. Our generosity. Our gathering. Maybe you remember in the creation narrative that the day of rest And focused worship, not that other days are not worship filled, but the day of rest and focused worship was not the first day. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was the seventh day, the last day, when God rested from all his work, Genesis 2 tells us. Now we got to understand that God's rest on the seventh day back in Genesis wasn't because he was worn out. It wasn't from fatigue, from all His labors in the six days of creation. Rather, the seventh day in Genesis was the climactic day of God's creative genius. Obviously, the expression of His creativity of mankind, our forefathers, our mother, Adam and Eve, That that marks the the display of God's incredible genius and creative ability. But the climactic day of the creation narrative is not the creation of man and woman, it's the day of rest. When in Genesis chapter 1-2, and God invites the entire created order on the seventh day to join Him in doing what He had been doing from all eternity, that is the enjoyment of God. He made everything for His glory and on the seventh day He said, now you all glorify Me and join Me. In that happy place. I want to say one other thing about the seventh day, which presupposes that everybody understands there's a weekly rhythm to our lives when you gather on the first day of the week. There's a weekly rhythm in every culture. Not just church people, but you go to places where the Gospel has not ever permeated the culture, and you'll find that they operate on a seven-day pattern. That's been true of every culture in human history. Now that ought to be strange. Because there's an astronomical explanation for every calendar cycle except a seven-day week. Meaning, you can explain why a day exists. That's the rotation of the earth on its axis. The sun doesn't go up and down. We're spinning. And in 24 hours, it goes up and down. So it seems. Astronomically, you can explain not only a day, but a month. That's the, the lunar cycle, the moon orbiting our earth. Astronomically, you can explain why a year exists. That's because the earth, while it's spinning on its axis, is also orbiting around the sun, and it takes our planet 365 days to make that cycle. So a day and a month and a year can all be explained by the stars in the sky and the moon around our earth. Where did a week come? Why does every culture in human history honor a week and operate within its confines? Because God hardwired it into your nature. When He created the earth in six days and all that it contains and the sun and the moon and the stars. And He called all of it to praise Him. But do you see a difference in the seventh day and the first day? In Genesis, we rest on the last day. In light of the Gospel, we rest on the first day. That's because the Gospel shapes everything about the church. Instead of bringing all of our efforts into our rest, we realize they're all contaminated by our sin and we have nothing to offer to a holy God. The Gospel says, rest at the beginning. Receive from Me all you need and venture out in My power into the week to come. Instead of working all week and bringing our labors to God and resting in Him, the Gospel shows us that we begin our week by faith, resting in the finished work of Jesus, reminding ourselves that we're blood-bought and that God provides for us all that He requires from us. And the New Testament churches would get together according to verses 1-4, through and they would have a strong practice of not only weekly worship on the first day, but also generous giving. Putting aside is in the text. Saving their resources as they have prospered. An act of corporate worship in the New Testament church was, duh, God has given everything to us. When we get together, let's give the resources that He's entrusted to us back to Him for the spread of the Gospel around the world. Before we move on from this first point, the Gospel creates radical generosity in our lives and in the local church. I want you to look that in verse 3, we find how the church is governed. The churches were congregationally governed. Not only do they gather on the first day of the week, Paul, who's an apostle and gave lots of instructions to lots of people about how to live for Jesus, doesn't give them orders. He asked them to make the decision Whomever you approve, the you in that phrase in verse 3 is plural. Whomever y'all approve, the gift will go with those people. I will send letters with them to carry your gift. So do you see a tension now in verses 1 and 2 compared to verse 3? Verses 1 and 2, I instructed the churches of Galatia. I told them what to do. Give to the poor. The Gospel should make your heart happy about that. I commanded them is in the, in the passage. I directed the churches of Galatia. And then in verse 3 he calls it a gift. How can you say, you need to do this. I'm telling you to do this. Thank you so much for your gift. Here's how that works. It's easy to miss. If you just look at the first few verses of chapter 16, it doesn't make much sense. I demand, I instruct, I give you charge. Thank you for your gift. Not the way it works, Paul. If you only look at those first four verses, it really doesn't work. But if you look at the grand scheme of the letter, it becomes much more clear. Paul knows that these precious people to whom he is writing have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. This is a true church. Not a fake one. Not a bunch of people who call themselves a church, but they're not a biblical one. This is a true church bought with the blood of Jesus. He knows they have been paid for at the highest premium. They're a messed up church, to be sure. That's why he writes them this love letter. But they're a true church. These are Jesus' people. They've given their lives to Christ. Or better yet, to quote Jesus, God gave their lives to Christ. And because they're bought by Him, Paul knows that their hearts can't help but be generous in return. So in the light of the Gospel, which shapes the church, Paul can say, be generous. Thank you for your gift. Because when you see the cross and what God paid for our wretched soul, it's not a debtor's ethic where we're paying Him back. It's a Gospel ethic where we say, there is so much mercy in Him to save a wretch like me and to save wretches like us. There's got to be mercy galore in Him for others. So we want His love to flow through us and in our generosity, the Gospel advanced to others. First Chronicles puts it well. Who am I? David prayed. Who am I and who are my people? That we should be able to offer as generously as this, for all things come from You, and from Your hand we have given to You. That's what's happening in this first part of the passage. So, the Gospel purchase shapes the church's generosity. Number 2, verses 5-9. to Christ's churches are also to be marked by a Gospel-shaped hospitality. It's more an open heart than an open home, but an open heart will lead to an open home. Gospel shaped hospitality. Did you let your eyes fall on verses five to nine? We'll just walk through them in order. Verse five there's no semblance in this passage that Paul is presuming on the Christian's hospitality as he welcomes himself into their midst. He invites himself and then says, Thank you for being so hospitable. Again, it doesn't seem like it works. But all one needs to do is continue reading, not only in 1 Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians, to see that Paul knew that he was deeply loved by these people. His presence was greatly desired by these people. As it was elsewhere. And he knew why. Because God, God opened their heart. God, therefore, as a byproduct... A necessary consequence. Open their homes. Open their church to be open to other Gospel laborers and servants of the King. Paul was so assured that the Christian's hospitable spirit would be extended to him that he said to them in verse 6, I'm not just hanging out for a day or a weekend. I'm coming for the winter. Pack the freezer. I'm on my way. And then he says in verse 7, I do not wish to see you just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time. Talk about wearing out your welcome. Nope. Gospel-shaped hospitality. Let's ask ask a question that's behind Paul's assumption that they'll be hospitable. When is Jesus going to kick you out of His house? Never. His heart is wide open to you. And that will never change. He has no buyer's remorse. He is so thankful that you are His child. He loves you through and through and forever and ever. And He wants you in His presence. That's why we say around here, because we get numb to words like love, God does love you, but He also likes you. He wants you. He knows your name and He would like for you to come for the winter and then decide just to stick around forever. And Paul knows that God's people are shaped by that Gospel. Gospel hospitality. Verse 7, let your eyes fall on this phrase. If the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. I'm going to come to you for the winter. I don't want to stay just a little while. If the Lord permits. So similar to the teaching in the book of James, isn't it? Where we find in James chapter 4, You who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, make a profit, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. James 4.14 You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Deo valente. God willing. Charles Hodge says, the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 16.7 If you look at the context, is Jesus Christ. This means that Paul recognizes palpably, concretely, that Jesus the King of glory is the One who orders all events and who guides everything. And Paul is glad to submit to his sovereign rule. Do you see how Paul is submitted to the will of Jesus if the Lord permits? He's not a presumptuous man. He doesn't suppose that he or any other person is the captain of their own fate. You are not. Your mommy may have told you when you were little you can be anything you want and you can do anything you put your mind to. And that may sound very flattering, but it is not true. You are not your own God. Proverbs 16, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases, the psalmist wrote. So notice that Paul's discernment on where the Lord was leading him was totally submitted to God's sovereign plan and was not based on whether or not it would be easy. God seems to be calling a bunch of missionaries to the easy places. The Lord led me. Of course He did. You and everybody else that's got liquidable income to go on really nice vacations. Not to doubt that God doesn't have a heart for the pristine places on our planet. But if you'll look at the phrase in verse 9, you'll find I'm going to stay here in in Ephesus until Pentecost. I'm not going to come yet. The Lord had not willed it yet. Because there's a wide open door for effective ministry here. And, and, and there are many adversaries. Paul, it's about time that uh, you understand God's will is for you to get out of dodge if it's so difficult. Nope. It's not predicated on how hard or how easy it is. It's predicated on the Lord Almighty has called me. I will do His bidding. I belong to Him and not myself. He gives me the assignments. My response is yes, sir. Give me grace to obey. So our second point is that Christ's churches are to be marked by a Gospel-shaped hospitality. In short, that means we expect because of the Gospel of Jesus, we expect God's people to welcome God's people because our God has welcomed us as His people. So I want to say an application from a sermon from years ago, and those who, of you who were here, I'd be like shockingly surprised if anybody remembers what I said last week, let alone a few years ago. I'm not going to repreach that whole sermon, but I'm going to ask you an application from it. It comes from this passage, and it came then from the book of Hebrews. Have you ever taken your house key? Got on your face, if that would help you to signify the significance of it. Lay it on the floor in the middle of your family room. Get on your face and say, God, that key belongs to You. This is not my house. This isn't where I come to hide from the world in my own little fortress. This belongs to You, Jesus. Use it for Your glory. Paul assumes that every Christian lives like that because that's the way Jesus treated you. Number three, Not only generosity and hospitality, but Christ's churches are also to be marked by a Gospel-fueled missiology. We'll get to the meaning of that word in a moment. It comes from verses 10 and 11. Let your eyes fall there. If Timothy comes, see that he's with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me I expect him with the brethren. Gospel fueled missiology. The fuel for missions is Jesus and the Spirit of God taking the work of Christ and filling our lives with His own power to be engaged in His work. We could say it this way the Lord's work done the Lord's way in the Lord's power. The gospel marks true churches this way our missiology. Our understanding of the mission that God has given to us. What it is and how it is to be accomplished. Timothy in verse 10 is a faithful servant of Jesus. You can see him doing the Lord's work. We know from Scriptures, his story. He traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul. He went on various missionary journeys. He was picked up along the way, circumcised as a missiological application for where they were headed. He was put in charge of pastoring different churches. No doubt, the church at Ephesus along with the other elders there. On occasion, Paul dispatched him to different places to check on congregations that they had previously visited to labor among those churches for what Paul calls in Corinthians for their joy and progress in the faith. Paul wanted to send Timothy to Corinth again precisely for that purpose. And he says that when they come, they were to recognize two things about this man. Number one, they were God's mission field. I'm sending him to you because you need some help. And you should therefore receive him with great kindness. No fear for this man. And he even says in this passage, let no one despise him. Verse 11, Many believe that's because of Timothy's age. Look, if you can't follow a 30-year-old man teaching the Gospel to you, you can't follow Jesus. And he was probably a young man because when Paul writes to Timothy personally, he says, let no one look down on you for your youth, but you set an example for the older believers in faith, life, love, liberty, and holiness. So I just want to say to all the young people here, I've looked as best I can and I can't find the youth section of the Bible. I can't find the teenage section or the child section. And I just want to say, no matter how old you are, right now, right now, is the time to surrender your heart, your life, your everything, your future to Jesus the King. And as you do, local churches should recognize the ways He's gifted everyone, young and old, who's truly in Christ. And we should realize that God intends to use those who are following Jesus and doing the Lord's work to help us. So, so first, the, the Corinthians. We're God's mission field. And so are you. We've all seen the signs on modern day church parking lots that as you're leaving, the sign says you are entering God's mission field. I think that's a fine thing, but I would much prefer to just uproot the thing and placard it over the front door. As you come in, you're entering God's mission field. You're the field. You're the place where God's at work. This is the mission field. We all have gobs of room to grow and develop in Christ's likeness. But number two, not only were they the field, and therefore they should receive Timothy with kindness, but number two, you can see it in verse 11, they were to send Timothy to his next destination with their support and blessing. So you can see one of the principles that's at work in this passage and how the Gospel is supposed to shape the local church. Paul is teaching that the church in Corinth is immensely valuable as the bride of Christ. And in that light, they're worthy to be blessed with the likes of Timothy. And we'll get to some other brothers here in a moment. Because they're doing the Lord's work. But the other principle is, and I hope you can see it from verse 11, Paul is teaching them that they're not the only place that the Lord's at work. And they should take joy in supporting faithful workers who are sent out from them to serve in other portions of the Lord's vineyard, which harkens back to my application a moment ago about... How we steward our widow's might here. Our limited resources. We're a small church. We don't have much. But we fully intend to take the resources the Lord's given us and trust that the Lord will multiply them like the bread and the loaves as we give them out for the advance of the Gospel. Like verse 11 is talking about. Timothy wasn't an apostle. He didn't make the list of the Fan favorites earlier in Corinthians. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. You don't find Timothy in that list. He may have been known and appreciated, but he wasn't one of the all-stars. Do you see what Paul says about him? He is doing the Lord's work. Verse 10, as I also am. The man is irrelevant. It's the message. And Timothy's preaching the same artesian well, pure water of Jesus that Paul is preaching. And if you can only receive from God if your favorite podcast preacher is the one on the other end of the line, I'm not so sure it's God you're receiving from. This isn't a popularity contest. It's about the potentate of the universe. And us opening our ears and receiving from Him however He so chooses. The simple way to summarize, I think, verses 10 and 11 is, churches are responsible to receive and support the work of missions and those who labor in spreading the Gospel, planting and pastoring churches, because that's the wise plan that God has designed for the evangelization of the whole world. We've said it before and I'm going to say it again. And uh, if you'll indulge me and God gives me another few decades to live, I hope to say it a few billion more times. When I read the New Testament, I'm gripped again and again that though God is gracious, He uses a trillion means to get the Gospel out to the world. I hope I'm saying that as clearly as I possibly can. God is so gracious and He is so beneficent in His love and His ability to get the Gospel out. But when I read the New Testament, I find, unless I'm missing something, that God's one and only plan, as revealed in the pages of Scripture, to cause the whole earth to know how glorious He is, to do good for all of His people, and to get the Gospel to the nations, is the local church. So when I say the Gospel shapes the missiology of the church, I mean, in Scripture, we are what God is using to receive those who labor in the Gospel and to send out more. And I prayed again this week, and oh how we should pray together more often. God, raise up laborers for the harvest among us and give us the privilege to send them out with our support and blessing to the ends of the earth. So our third point is that local churches are to be marked by gospel-fueled missiology. So we've got generosity, hospitality, and missiology. But number four comes from verse 12. And it teaches us that local churches are to be marked by gospel-awakened theology. Gospel-awakened theology. Concerning Apollos our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. And... I could have made this point from some other passages in these 20 verses, some other portions, uh, but it seemed most clear to me in this part of the text. And you may be thinking, where in the world, Jordan, do you see Gospel awakened theology in verse 12? Well, I'll give you my best effort to show you. Apollos, our brother. Well, now is not the right time for him to come. The verse says that. Paul did encourage him to come, and he will come when he has opportunity. Well, where's theology in that verse? And by theology, let's be crystal clear. You with me? I'm not going to yell at you, I want to say it loud for impact. But I trust you're with me. Every single born again Christian wants to know God more deeply. Every Christian. That's one of the tests that 1 John gives for true conversion. If you don't desire to know the God who has loved you so much and at such a cost, then it calls into question the authenticity of your conversion. Where do I get theology marking The church's life, a deep, deep desire to know God more deeply. It's in this phrase Apollos, our brother. Do you remember anything about this man? In this very letter, we do find that he's one of the saints that the church was divided over. That's not his fault, that's theirs. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Instead of letting the Corinthians' pettiness and spiritual immaturity dictate for Paul how they will be ministered to and who will minister to them, Paul expects them to grow in their maturity. So they can handle when Apollos comes and not be divided by it. If you guys are all cliquish, you like this guy, you like this guy, you like that guy, I'm just not going to send any of them to you because you're too immature. No, I'm going to send them right back to you and expect that you're going to grow in your Christ-likeness and maturity. So that you can handle it without being divided. He doesn't say, I'm going to accommodate your immaturity. I'm going to expect your deepening theology. Your growth in the knowledge and character of God. That's one. This this word at the beginning of verse 12, but concerning, that's the sixth and final, now concerning in the book of 1 Corinthians, which means that the church wrote to Paul six requests, one of which was, can you please send Apollos back? That was probably his, his uh, fan crowd. And so he responds to them. And he says in verse 12, I urged him strongly to come. I don't just kind of hope he comes. I really, really want him to come. He couldn't come now. That's probably because like Paul in Ephesus, Apollos also had his hand to a plow that God had given him, and he couldn't leave that ministry or Apollos was mature enough to understand that the Corinthians weren't ready. He would come at the right time. As we keep learning about Apollos in the New Testament, the the, the fact that his coming represented that the church should be marked by a Gospel-dominated, Gospel-drenched, deep theology ever-growing, it just becomes more clear the more we look at Apollos. I'll just say it briefly. Here's what we know about this man who Paul wanted strongly to go see the Corinthians. We know he was born in Alexandria, Acts 18. For those of you who are helped to picture the Bible, that's certainly the way my mind works. Alexandria is in Egypt. That means Apollos is a dark-skinned man. He's from Alexandria. Number two, we also know from Acts 18:24, he was an eloquent man. He was one of the best preachers in the first century. We also know from Acts 18 that he was, quote, mighty in the Scriptures. This man could preach, and he could preach the truth. In Titus chapter 3, we know that he ministered both in Corinth and also on the island of Crete. We know from Acts 19 that he ministered in the city of Ephesus. And maybe most famously, we know from Acts 18.26 that he was, quote, taught the way of God more accurately by two saints that are mentioned later in this chapter, Priscilla and Aquila. They they heard him preach. They were probably moved. It was probably good stuff. But he he needed a little more precision. So sister Priscilla and brother Aquila bring him aside and say, Apollos, let us give you a little more accuracy in what you're saying. And he received their instruction. So the reason, perhaps, that I've titled this point, Christ's churches are to be marked by gospel-awakened theology, maybe it's much more obvious to some of you. This is what I mean do you think there's any way on God's green earth that Paul would strongly encourage a man whose theology was getting deepened day by day through help from Aquila and Priscilla and others who influenced him, do you think there's any way on God's green earth Paul would strongly encourage that man to go to this church and not expect him to do the very same thing for them? Paul hoped. Paul longed for this man to go to them again not to cater to their pettiness and immaturity, not to further divide the church, but to help them see the beauty of Christ and the truth of the Gospel and the depths of God's character and the brilliance of His love. Paul wanted Apollos to go to Corinth not because of his eloquence, but because of his exegesis that he would take the Word out and feed the saints. Paul knew Apollos would teach them the way of God more accurately. And that's why he wanted him to be among the Corinthians. To give them a deeper, richer, more Christ-centered, Christ-saturated, Christ-exalting, Christ-beholding diet. And Paul loved them and wanted that for them. Oh, for more of that in our own church. So our fourth point is, Christ's churches are to be marked by a Gospel-awakened theology. A deep, deep desire and a practical pursuit of the character of God. Are you stalking down Are you climbing the rock of the mountain of God's inexhaustible, incomprehensible, unfathomable character and love? I'm saying to you as best I know how, every Christian in every church longs to know God more deeply. Are you one of His people? 5th, verses 13 and 14. Christ's churches are to be marked by a gospel-reflecting lifestyle. Well, I've talked about generosity and hospitality and missiology and theology, so if you like alliteration, it could be doxology or anthropology, but let's just put it in our words, lifestyle. Gospel-reflecting lifestyle. As the light of the gospel shines in and out of our lives, it should show up in some very practical ways. There are five imperatives in verses 13 and 14 that tell you exactly how to live. Number one, be alert. Number two, stand firm. Number three, act like men. Number four, be strong. Number five, do everything in love. And again, these are imperatives, these are commands, these are not suggestions. The first imperative, be on the alert, means to be spiritually wide awake. The antenna of your life should be sensitive to the work and Word of God the Holy Spirit. Like when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Are you living soporifically? Sound asleep? Sleepwalking through this world? Or are you awake? Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit? God commands that to you, for you and that is a Gospel reflection in your life. The command to be alert is unpacked more fully by Paul. So many other places, listen carefully to Romans 13. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the daytime, not in carousing. This would be the opposite of alert. Not in carousing or drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife. Not in jealousy. Those are sleepy things. Be awake. Jesus has saved you. Get sensitive to the Spirit again. If you're numb and cold and almost dead and indifferent to the activity of God in your life, I can't think of anything more urgent for you than to cry out for a fresh touch from Heaven. Get awake! Get alert! Number two imperative, stand firm. This is a rebuke from the Corinthians' fickleness which he had addressed for the previous 15 chapters. In chapter 1, 4, 10, and 15, stand firm. Stop being so wishy-washy, blown around like chaff. Every wave of the sea just tosses you all over the place. Get a conviction. Live in light of the Gospel. Stand firm. Incidentally, this was the number one command God gave to Israel when they were about to cross into the Promised Land. Not, go be awesome. Go do great things. Stand firm. Before they crossed the Red Sea, God says in Exodus 14, be quiet. God will fight for you. Just stand firm. Don't move. Stop shifting. This is a Gospel imperative. Are you the same person all the time, everywhere you go? Or are you just changed with the whims of whoever's around you? That's such a worldly and ungodly character. Christ within, Christ without. Stand firm. Number three, act like men. This is not directed only toward the male gender. And by that, I certainly don't mean that Paul was swept away in the contemporary gender nonsense of our day. I mean what Jeffrey Wilson wrote about this phrase, act like men. Some translations render it, play the man. Wilson said that they must give up their childishness. Charles Simeon about this same phrase says, you are not as children to be either allured or awed to a deviation from anything which your better judgment directs. As men, Simeon said, you should examine well whatever is proposed to you. Compare it with the Word of God. And as men, you should determine for yourselves and resolutely adopt the line of conduct which the Word of God prescribes. Tom Schreiner says it means be courageous. Be bold. Don't be like a child. Don't be childish in your thinking. Grow up in Jesus. Be stable. The fourth imperative is be strong. Concerning this ex- exhortation to toughness, we must remember that it is never to be interpreted as squelching tenderness and, effect, and affection. I, I, I love that the Apostle Paul says stuff like this. Be strong. Stand firm. Act like men. And then in another place he writes, like a tender mother nursing her babies. That's how I related to you. You can be affectionate and tender and also strong and bold. Fourth, uh, Pardon me, that's the fourth imperative. The fifth and final imperative comes in verse 14, and it's the one to color them all. Do everything in love. If there was ever a single verse in the Bible that would give you an entire Christian ethic in nine words, this is it. Let all that you do... Be done in love. Verse 14. It's a Christian's call to action. I would encourage you to memorize it, pray over it, meditate on it, preach it to your heart continually. It's nine words long. I'm pretty sure we can all lock it away. By the Spirit's aid though, let us pray that we live it out. We've said many times here that when we bump into this kind of teaching in the Bible, you can't use people and love them at the same time. I know there's a lot of folks that want to be manly and strong and courageous and bold and all that, and they're ready to tell everybody about it. And if they get their fingers on a little social media feed, they're going to let them have it, and they think that that's courageous. Look, if your ministry is social media, you got way too much time on your hands. But look what Paul's saying you can't use people and love them at the same time. Your boldness, your courage, your strength, your manliness, if it's not saturated in love, it's not Christian. To love people, you can't need them to give you anything. If you need people to give you something, then we must think that Christ has not already provided everything that we need. We are free in the love of Jesus to love each other and others, no matter the return we get on our investment. It's not love them if they love you back, it's love your enemies. It's not treat others the way they treat you, it's treat them the way you would have wanted them to treat you. It's literally the second greatest commandment in the Bible love your neighbor as you love yourself. Our fifth point, Christ churches are to be marked by gospel informed living lifestyle. Sixth, verse 15 to 18, Christ churches are to be marked by gospel dominated. Here's your word for today, soteriology. Gospel dominated soteriology. If you let your eyes skim verses 15 to 18, By Gospel dominated, I mean dominated. Soteriology refers to the doctrine of salvation. How does God save a soul? If there were any other way for wretched sinners like you and me and the Corinthians to be saved other than the bloody death of the Lord Jesus Christ, then God is the most epic fool in the universe. Why would He give His only begotten Son over to a brutal death and divine forsakenness and condemnation at Golgotha if you can be saved by your good deeds? As David Dixon said so many years ago, Jesus Christ Himself is the sum total of saving knowledge. Where do I get that in this passage? Stephanus, verse 15. The first fruits of Achaia. This true church in Corinth was not a religious social club. It wasn't a man-centered uh, result of man-centered marketing in Jesus' name. They didn't get a lot of people because they had the right music or sound or degree of the dimness of their lights. It wasn't a place where easy believism ran amok. It was not the latest spiritual fad. It was not the result of formulaic church growth tactics. It was a true church. And the yoke of the church of Corinth was singed in the fire of hell, they knew their own sin. And it was soaked in the blood of Christ, they knew His redeeming excellencies. Those true churches are unmistakably seen to be biblical in the fact that they are dominated with a biblical soteriology. Let me say that as clear and as simple and as concise as I know how. If we cannot agree on how God saves a soul I don't care what else we agree on. You can put biblical words all over it and spiritual phrases and jargon from noon until nighttime. If we can't agree on how God saves a soul, we don't agree on anything. Soteriology means biblical understanding of salvation. Tell me how Stephanus got saved. Tell me why he and his household were the first and only Christians in the entire region of Achaia. We're talking about Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and probably Louisiana. One household. One family in Christ. How did they get saved? The family of Stephanus, Charles Hodge said, was the first family in Achaia that embraced the Gospel. The Gospel got there Remember Paul's Macedonian call? Paul intended to go that way. A man in the night told him to go that way. And when he went that way, guess who he bumped into? Stephanus. Guess what Stephanus heard? Jesus Christ died for your sins. He can cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. He filled up all that the law requires for you to be made right with God and then He put His own credit on the altar of God and He'll give it to you if you'll forsake all your ability to save yourself. If you'll stop calling yourself righteous in the sight of God because all you've ever done is filthy rags in His sight. And Paul said something to Stephanus like this, if you'll throw yourself into the merciful arms of Jesus, not only will He save you today, He will never, never let you go. The Gospel came and God saved and He's doing it today. We have members of our church who are the first Christian in their entire family, not only immediate, but extended. I've been to places in the world, as many of you have, where there are almost zero Christians, but God brought a faithful missionary there to share the love of Christ. I'm reminded now of a story that I'm not going to tell you in India when a lady showed up, when somebody knocked on her door with a bucket of rice and said, God told me to bring this to you. And the lady said, I knew somebody was coming. And she heard the gospel for the first time and was the first convert in her entire village. I could tell you stories about that in places in remote parts of Nigeria and other parts of the world where our churches have been, our churches been. I get newsletters on the regular from missionary friends who are in closed countries and God's still saving people just like he saved Stephanus. And guess what? There are no closed countries. There are just countries you can't get back out of. But we go with the gospel because we believe there's one and only one way that God will ever save anybody. And He's worthy of their praise. And if they don't hear this message, they will perish in their sins and everlastingly be separated from the living God. So Paul says, you need a Gospel soteriology. You've got to remember God's saving people like Stephanus. In verse 16, we're finding examples of how we submit to such men. Stephanus, presumably with a couple of other brothers who came to see Paul with this letter from Corinth had become the pastors of the church. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus. And Paul says, submit to such men. Why? Because they were the first Christians? No. Because they devoted themselves to the work. The Lord's work. God tells us that we need spiritual leaders. We should submit to them. We should follow so long as their teaching and instruction and care is biblical. Verses 17 and 18. We don't just skip these names in the Bible. Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus who had come to Paul. This is so beautiful. All we know about the last two guys is in this verse. Fortunatus means fortune. Achaicus means he's from Achaia. It's the region where Corinth is. Both of those names, by the way, are most, were most commonly used in the first century for slaves. You see what God just did? He saves Stephanus. He becomes a leader in the church. He saves Fortunatus. He saves Achaicus. They may have been slaves. They become leaders in the church. God's no respecter of persons. God's no respecter of persons. Verse 17 says that these three men have supplied what was lacking on the Corinthians part to Paul. And what was that? Verse 18, they refreshed my spirit and yours. They refreshed my spirit. It reminds me of Paul's letter to Philemon when he wrote, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. How do you want to be known? How do you want to be remembered? What do you want your family to say at your graveside? Wouldn't you want people to say something like this, of all the things that he or she did really well, the thing that they were especially good at was refreshing my heart in Jesus. These words mean mean that Paul longed to hear good things about what God was doing in the church in Corinth. And when these brothers came to Paul in Ephesus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. They refreshed his heart in Christ by bringing report of the real activity of the Holy Spirit among these genuine believers. Well, we close here in verse 19 and 20 with a Gospel-drenched ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. When we get the Gospel right, there are consequences. When we see how God saves people through the bloody death of Jesus and His victorious resurrection, faith alone in Christ alone, He saves us into a people. Look at verse 19 the churches of Asia. Look at the end of verse 19 the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's home. There's no competition between these churches. They love each other, they're on the same team, they serve the same Lord. The churches of Asia in verse 19 is modern day Turkey and Greece. Aquila and Prisca presumably are in Ephesus at this time, and there's a church that meets in their house. They all sing greetings to the Corinthians. And look at verse 19, Prisca and Aquila heartily greet these saints in the Lord. They love them so much. They want them to know how much they're loved and they're praying for them. Do you see what's happening here? Paul wants the church at Corinth to be encouraged, to remain faithful to the Lord, and one of the Lord's favorite ways, favorite ways to encourage you. One of the Lord's favorite ways to encourage you is to remind you that even if they've not spent a lot of time with you lately or called you on the phone in months or shown up at your house, that that whole time that existed between those intervals, they've been thinking about you and praying for you. They've been longing for you to make progress in the faith. And what's happening here is Paul is trying to open the Corinthians' eyes to see that they need to be stimulated to keep running the race toward Jesus, reminded that brothers and sisters in the faith all over Asia, in Ephesus, Prisca and Aquila, these other brothers, Fortunatus and Achaicus and so forth, are praying for you and they're cheering you on in the journey. In effect, Paul is saying, if you quit now, if you lose out now, it's not only you, It's going to bring discouragement to so many other saints. But if you keep going now, if you keep marching forward in the grace of God, toward the face of God, in the power of the Spirit of God, just think what they're going to have happen in their hearts when they hear about your progress in the faith. Verse 20 leaves us with the way the church should act toward each other. This is in Ecclesiology 101. We're not like a family, we are a family. And we're to relate to each other in healthy ways like healthy families. Some of us have very atrocious family experiences and it's hard to understand what a healthy family would look like, but the church is to be a healthy family. Here's what I mean. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Healthy, wholesome, non-awkward, non-sensual, relate to each other like brothers and sisters, not flirty, not cliquish, rather safe, normal, natural displays of affection that are welcomed by both parties full of genuine agape love for one another in Christ. We're to feel that that bond with each other and express it appropriately. All the brethren greet you. All the brethren love you. They're all thinking about you. They all have this affection for you. So greet each other with that kind of affection when you're together in your local church. It's very much about how we feel about our brothers and sisters in the faith and other churches. Hodge says that this is this holy kiss was a token of Christian brotherhood. It was a pledge of mutual forgiveness and love. It was bigger than the side pecks on the cheek, which some cultures still do today. It was, you're my brother. We're both forgiven in Jesus. So I forgive you of any offense against me. And we live in harmony now. I asked Daniel Mills months ago, if uh, I asked him with really no alternative. <laughs> we were at lunch together many months ago before the First Corinthians series started, and I handed him a big old fat commentary from Charles Hodge on First Corinthians. And I said, every week, here's the passages we'll be preaching. I want you to read in advance, a month in advance. Send me the best notes from Charles Hodge on that passage. And I'm reading other commentaries and so forth. And week after week after week for all these months, Daniel has faithfully read and sent to me installments of rich insights from Charles Hodge. And concerning a holy kiss, Daniel says this. After condensing and distilling what Hodge said which was wonderful, Daniel said, in healthy ways, we are to show holy affection to each other. You're not alone. It's not an issue of whether you like handshakes or side hugs. It's do you love the brethren? Do you want the best for them? Is this a wholesome, safe environment? Nobody's going to be abused. Nobody's going to be taken advantage of. Zero manipulation. All healthy, all wholesome, all Christ-centered, all full of agape love. We want to cheer each other on in the faith. That's what's going on in verse 20. Healthy, mutually appreciated, non-sensual, Christ-honoring, to the glory of God affection is a good thing and it's a biblical expression. So the two things you should do is give your life to Jesus because that's how this starts to come out of you. You can't produce it. Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. I'm talking about a Gospel-shaped church in 1 Corinthians 16. And if you're not shaped by the Gospel, it doesn't matter how often you go to church. These things won't come out of you until you belong to another. Give your life to Jesus. And number two, give yourself to His bride. Give yourself to His bride. Why would you try to live the Christian life alone? If you only tried to obey 1 Corinthians 16 by yourself, you have to do all the generous giving, all the open-hearted hosting, all the evangelism, all the missionary going, all the deep digging in the Word, all the enhancing of your own biblical theology, all the efforts to live obediently to Christ, all the witnessing for Christ and applying the Gospel to your own life, and all the intentional church-strengthening work by yourself. And you're not called to do that. Every pronoun just about in this entire chapter is plural. Y'all do this. You all do this. Together do this. Because the Gospel shapes us to live in a way that brings glory to Christ and good to His people. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-20 is about the beautiful expression of Christ's church on the earth. And one day, the church is going to be totally, radiantly beautiful with the fullness of Christ. Between now and then, we should increasingly look like this. So help us God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in Heaven, it is a privilege and joy to try to unpack the bottomless well of Your Word. And my prayer is that Grace Church will be so saturated by the Gospel that it would be so obvious to us and others in our generosity and hospitality, in our theology and soteriology and missiology and the way we live our lives, that we would be dominated by Your love for us in Christ, the Gospel. As we sing this little chorus, we pray that it would freshly penetrate our heart and give a voice to what is true of the work You're doing in us. As we sing the Gospel song and then respond at the Lord's table or those who will remain seated, we ask for these next few moments that the Gospel would go deep, deep in every heart. In Jesus' name, Amen.